where many people have gathered to celebrate perhaps a holiday or some other special occasion, and you have felt, as you're attending that occasion, emotionally disconnected from all the people around you who are celebrating. I remember some years ago, my nephew got married in Illinois, and the wedding was scheduled, obviously, for many months, uh, but it happened to take place two weeks, less than two weeks, from the date that my father died. And so all of my family is gathering from the four corners. We live all over the place, and so we're gathering for this wedding. We're sitting down in this church, and my siblings and I and our spouses were sitting there in the church in near the front as the ceremony is about to begin, and I distinctly remember turning over and watching my mother being ushered in and sitting down without my father accompanying her. And there, an occasion of a wedding, I, be, I began to weep uncontrollably. As I realized that my father was gone and that my mother was now a widow, she would remain a widow, and that my father would never sit beside her again. On an occasion when so many people were there, with joy and merriment in their hearts, and certainly it is something to celebrate, the joining of a man and woman in marriage. I know that I and the members of my family on that occasion, we were there mourning. We were grieving, along with celebrating, grieving the loss of my father. And I know that there are times, and perhaps you can identify with that story, there are times when tears are shed in the middle of celebration. I hope you have your Bible. I hope you'll turn in your Bible to Luke 19. Luke 19. We have a passage that we've already read a portion of it this morning as we began our service. It's page number 1247, 1248 actually, in your pew Bible. And I want us to notice what happened after the crowd was shouting and after there was great celebration of Jesus being the one that they claimed, we were using messianic terms to describe him. And I want us to notice what Luke records next in verse 41 of Luke 19. Going back up, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees, when they heard the crowd shouting, and Pharisees in the multitude said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when the enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave, you in, not, not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now in this third year of Jesus' public ministry, as he made his way from Bethpage and from Bethany to Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, and this multitude was shouting, Loudly and joyfully, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All this enthusiastic celebration took place 
from the far side of the Mount of Olives. In other words, the, the side that was away from the city. And it was out of sight of the city of Jerusalem. But as the group of celebrants emerged from the other side of the ravine, as they're coming over the hill, the crest of the hill, and the impressive site of the temple complex can then quickly be seen. And then you see the entire walled city laying before you. And I've been on Mount Olives, I've seen that site. It is a very impressive site indeed. And that finally became visible. Luke records in verse 41, And when Jesus approached, he saw the city and wept over it. Why this, incong this incongruity? Why at that moment were tears flowing down the cheeks of the one whose entry was being celebrated? What was taking place in Jesus' heart at mind on that occasion? What did Jesus' mournful reaction help to teach us about him? What is that revealing about him and about God? when he weeps over the city like that. I'd like to suggest there are three insights into the heart and person of Jesus Christ, and I've called him the weeping prophet. Indeed, that is exactly how he's presented to us in this text. I'd like, first of all, to consider that Jesus was truly human. Truly human. And that he felt deep sadness, verse 41. See, Luke, is a, Luke was a competent physician. And he carefully researched in all of his writings, in Luke and the book of Acts, and he included details, details that some other gospel writers did not choose to include. And so Luke made it clear that Jesus did not merely silently, as he's looking at the city, uh, shed a tear or two down his cheek. The word that he used in the Greek means literally to sob. It means to wail aloud. One dictionary provided this definition. The word that he used here is any loud expression of grief, especially in mourning for someone who has died. This is not the same quiet tear of sadness that Jesus experienced uh, when he was standing there beside the grave of his friend Lazarus. And some of you may have grown up and, like me, uh, saw, thought it was fairly interesting that the shortest verse in the English Bible is John 11.35, in which we read that Jesus wept. That's a different term. That is not the same term we find here in this text. Here in Luke 19, amidst a joyous celebration, Jesus expressed loud, deep sorrow and weeping. Now this is not, this is the same word, sorry, this is the same word that also is found of Peter later on in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, as Peter reacts to the realization that he has three times denied his Lord, we read that he is bitterly sobbing and weeping. It's the same word used for those who gathered at the graves of loved ones and offered their loud lamentations, including Jairus and his family and friends. It's Mary and Martha who, in Luke, sorry, in John 11, they're weeping and wailing along with others there at the grave of their brother. It's Mary wailing and weeping outside the tomb of Jesus in John chapter 20. It's the widow of Nain who is weeping and wailing as she observes this, the, the, them carrying out her one and only dead son. 
That's the strong, intense word that's found here. And Jesus felt deep sorrow and sadness as a crowd shouted joyously. He sobbed as they celebrated. Jesus experienced deep and profound grief, and that is sharply contrasted with everything else that was going on around him at the time. What are we to make of Jesus' response? His sobbing and loud wailing, I am convinced, if nothing else, help give us further proof of Jesus' true humanity. Many critics down through the ages have denied Jesus' human nature. But in this text, Jesus is presented as one who experienced and outwardly expressed strong emotion and deep feelings. He was not a phantom who only appeared to be human. He felt the heaviness of heart that accompanies human sorrow. As a matter of fact, the description of the Messiah in Isaiah 53 pinpoints so accurately Jesus in this particular situation as he was indeed the man of sorrows. The man of sorrows. He was one who was acquainted with deep and profound grief. Hebrews chapter 5 or 7, the author of Hebrews writes that in the day of Jesus' flesh, that is when he truly became a human in the Incarnation, both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He experienced true emotions in a profound sense. And from that, I've been thinking about this point here, and I would suggest to you that sometimes when we suffer painful losses, when our hearts are aching deep within us with a kind of unrelenting sorrow and we oftentimes at those moments how do we feel we feel alone because deep down inside when you feel that level of emotion you say to yourself nobody knows the real grief and pain i'm feeling right now and that is just a caution by the way folks don't ever say to someone oh i know how you must be feeling it's not helpful it's not helpful because let's be honest even though other people trying their best to console us, no one else, at least from our perspective, no one else really feels the pain as deeply as we do. Wouldn't you say? Well, no one else truly knows our anguished hearts. But I assure you, Jesus is not immune to heartaches and grief. He is able to completely and fully empathize with each one of us no matter how deep your sadness of heart. He is and will ever be the man of sorrows. The God who made you is also the God who entered into this fallen world, a world that has tremendous amount of pain and suffering, a world in which people are experiencing again and again such sorrow, such grief, and such pain. I assure you, Jesus understands that pain. He was truly human, and he suffered and knows deep grief. There's a hymn in your hymnal. You want to turn there if you can, that's fine, 348. 
somebody really began to struggle with the fact that maybe in the midst of things that get so dark and so difficult, I wonder, does really Jesus care? Does anybody care? So he asks a number of questions. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Have you been there? Do you know what that's like? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with a nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When my, for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all night long. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it anything, is it nothing to him does he see? Oh yes, he cares, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary. I know my Savior cares. Can you say that? I'm convinced that pain and anguish of heart and sorrow either drive us to Christ and we understand and know Him more deeply in that sense, or oftentimes it pushes us away from Him and our hearts turn away from Him in a profoundly even more sad and tragic way. Jesus was truly human. Secondly, I'd like to also think about the point here that Jesus was truly God. He was truly God. And he accurately knew, he accurately prophesied and predicted the future. When Jesus saw the familiar sight of Herod's temple and the walled city of David, his mind was not limited to the immediate events that were occurring with this triumphal entry. The religious leaders there are insisting that he rebuke his disciples, verse 39, for reciting all these messianic affirmations about him. And Jesus reflected upon the utter tragedy that was unfolding now and the utter, utter tragedy that was going to unfold in the near future when the Jewish nation, in rejecting their Messiah, were going to suffer the inevitable consequences that were going to come. You see, Jesus is not just caught up in the moment of saying, well, these things are happening right here and I can't really see far beyond what's happening. Jesus knows the future, and that's very much on his mind during this time. As God in human flesh, Jesus knew with 100% accuracy what would take place 40 years from that moment. And he lamented the utter destruction of the city as a result of, almost, of most, almost all the citizens of Jerusalem. Indeed, you could say that Jesus, in rejecting that Messiah, he came as the divine one who had divine omniscience, divine knowledge, divine understanding of the future. We know that in A.D. 70, the Roman legions, under the command of Titus, encircled Jerusalem with a barricade all the way around the city. And they starved them out. Because if you, if you do that, if you have a walled city and you basically say, nobody gets in, nobody gets out, guess what? Your food's going to run out eventually. 
because all the food is being grown in the farms outside the walls. All you got to live on is what you've stored up for a while. And so the time went on and their famine was so severe, you can read about some of the horrors of what people had to go through uh, in other places, but the city almost became like a graveyard. People are just dying left and right. There was no possibility of escape. They're hemmed in from every side. And Luke records Jesus' prediction, verse 44, your enemies will level you to the ground and your children within you. Jewish historian Josephus described, and I think I have these in your notes, the destruction of Jerusalem in this way. Josephus wrote, while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying they don't care about who's dying. It was every age group, every person, young and old, important or not important. On the contrary, he says, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. After the population was decimated, buildings and walls are leveled too. Josephus again writes, the emperor ordered the entire city and the temple to be razed to the ground leaving only the loftiest towers and the portion of the wall enclosing the city on the west, all the rest of the wall that surrounded the city was so completely raised to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot. No reason to believe that the city had ever been inhabited. Now, I don't know of a single person. Maybe you do. I don't think you do. I don't think there's a single person who was able to accurately predict in the mid-1950s, after the Cold War, after the Iron Curtain was raised and the partitioned off there in East Germany, East Berlin, all those things, I don't think there was anybody in 1955 who could ever have predicted what would unfold in 1989 when Eastern Europe and the Iron Curtain fell. No one came close to predicting such a dramatic change with pinpointed accuracy. 30 years before those huge life-changing events took place. But here's Jesus, the sovereign king, entering into Jerusalem, riding on that donkey there, and only weeks earlier, recorded in Luke 18, Jesus had informed his disciples, not for the first time or the second time, but the third time he's telling them again that they were going to go up to Jerusalem, all things that were written about through the prophets about him were going to take place and be accomplished. And Jesus accurately said to them, predicting he would be delivered up to the Gentiles, that is the Romans. He would be mocked, mistreated, spat upon after they scourged him. He would be killed the third day he would rise again. Luke 18, 31 33. Jesus was aware. He was conscious. He was in total understanding of all that was going to take place in the future as the sovereign one who knows accurately what the future holds. And because he possessed divine omniscience and knew the future, his heart deeply mourned because the events that were to take place were going to occur in only a few short years, within that generation. The tears of a sovereign Savior serve to remind us of this important point, that while God has providential control over all the events of history, the principle of reaping and sowing remains in place and people are held accountable 
for their actions. I say again, the Bible teaches the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of human beings. And we can't escape that tension, that reality, that both exist in our world. Third point. Jesus expressed godly sorrow over unrepentant sinners. Look at verse 42. Jesus explained the reason for this loud expression of grief. If you had known the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. Jesus grieved the stubborn spiritual blindness of those who rejected him. They were filled with joy, those who were screaming and enjoying it. They were filled with joy, the text says, verse 37, because of the miracles that they had seen. Here they thought was the one who was going to put things in the right order and therefore things were going to be finally restored to the way we want them to be. But their hearts then rejected his claims and refused to honor him as the true Lord and the true suffering Messiah and King. And the religious leaders, who of course were instrumental in convincing everyone around them, those who followed them, they were looking for, of course, a military deliverer who would free them from the impressive rule of Rome. And here, heartbroken and wailing and loud mourning was Jesus' response as he course knew and reflected upon the stubborn rejection of their sinful sinful hearts turn back to luke 13 and notice again this expression of deep sorrow over those who rejected him page 1239 luke 13 verse 34 jesus lamented the fact earlier that so few would recognize his true identity and mission Luke 13, 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hearing Jesus' loud wailing as he entered Jerusalem helps us to capture a glimpse into the heart of God toward those who are lost. I want you to listen to this very compelling verse. I encourage you to underline in your Bible, Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, take a moment, look it up. Page 1028 in your pew Bible in the left-hand side of the book. The Bible is made up of two larger sections. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. This is in the left-hand side, the first part. Page 1028, Ezekiel 3311. Here we read, Say to those who conclude that they have no hope because of their sin, That's what he said in the previous context. Say to those who conclude they have no hope because of their sin, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Now, I want to be the first to say this. While we will never, ever fully understand and grasp and comprehend God, (laughs) because if we did, we would be God. So I grant you that. We will never fully understand and grasp and fully comprehend God. We know this for sure. With God, there is much sadness and mourning over those who reject the offer of salvation. There is much sorrow over the spiritual blindness that compels people to worship idols instead of the maker of all things. It is an utter tragedy that anybody would desire an idol of something in this created order instead of the one who made all things. And we see in Jesus' outward grief an expression of the compassionate heart of the Savior. And we must never assume that God finds pleasure in punishing the wicked. God never delights when a proud person pushes away the gospel of salvation of Christ alone through faith alone on the basis of grace alone. The Son of God had a broken heart going into Jerusalem. His heart felt the heavy weight of grief over those who rejected, those who refused the costly provision that he was to make later that week in rescuing helpless, guilty sinners from their sin and shame. Now I ask this question. What is your view of God? Is your God one that you conceive of as a cold, heartless, uncaring, angry creator? Or do you see him as compassionate, slow to anger, full of mercy and grace? Here is Jesus offering numerous times warnings extending numerous calls to repentance and faith. Have you ignored the warnings in the Bible? Is there someone here this morning who would say, you know, thus far it's true that I have refused to repent from all of my vain attempts to somehow think that I don't have to deal with God on His terms, or I have yet to repent from my vain attempts to somehow save myself by becoming a better person. If I just stop something, then somehow God will think better of me, and if, if I, maybe I'll do a couple other things, and God will somehow think I'm better than somebody else, and I might make it past that level of acceptance. But have you placed your wholehearted trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Through the shed blood that he offered in your place? Have you acknowledged it was your sin that put him on that tree? Or are you foolishly saying to yourself, you know, someday, one day, I'll make things right with God. My friend, don't be deceived. The scripture says, there is no peace, saith my God, for the wicked. There's no peace in ignoring God and not coming to him on his terms. Isaiah 48 verse 18 says, If only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. That's written to somebody who just kept putting it off, kept putting it off, kept putting it off. In your notes, I came across a very powerful 
I thought, summary of Henry, Matthew Henry, the great Puritan devotional writer. Listen to what he says. I hope you'll read along with me. None are so blind as those who will not see. The sin and folly of those who persist in a contempt of gospel grace are a great grief to the Lord Jesus and should be so to us. He looks with weeping eyes upon lost souls that continue impenitent and run headlong upon their own ruin. Christ had rather that they turn and live than go on and die, for he is not willing that any should perish. The love that Christ has for those who are perishing resulted in a heart full of anguish, mourning, and loud weeping and wailing. So I ask myself and I ask you this question. When was the last time during your celebration of the amazing grace and redemption of Jesus Christ and the mind-boggling wonders of salvation we have in Christ. When was the last time you were celebrating and those, that time was interrupted by deep grief and mourning over those who have yet to enter the kingdom of light? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, page 1398. This is an incredible insight into the heart of a, an apostle, a missionary who invested his life in trying to spread the news of Christ in those places where he had not been proclaimed. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul digresses, he acknowledges there's a concern about those in Philippi who are ministering things that are not true, uh, who are destroying the gospel in some ways, and so he's very concerned about their impact on the church. And look how he refers to them in verse 18. Well, I'll start 17. Brethren, join in and following my example. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Do you know what it is to weep for those who are enemies of the cross of Christ? Do you know what it is to weep for those who are lost? Is that part of your experience? Has the love of God so impacted your heart that you are filled with a sense of compassion and mercy and of a gracious longing to see others receive what you have received? While we're down in Quito, we were spending our last day uh, playing with the little children in the orphanage, precious children. And Catherine had gone and retrieved a notebook that uh, contained in it uh, a number of the stories of these children, why they were there in the orphanage. This little one was in a shoebox left in a park. This one was brought by the police. This one is from a teenage daughter 
who had various addiction issues and unable to care for them. This one had special needs and they were abandoned in the hospital. And I began to weep as I thought to myself, if somebody hadn't reached out and had compassion on these infants, they wouldn't be here. They're totally helpless. And somebody responded. Somebody had a big heart. And they still have a big heart every day taking care of them. And I say to myself, how do I look at the people around me? They might be well-dressed, successful, busy, prosperous. They could be people in my school, whoever they are, going on with life, very enthusiastic about what it is. But they, my friend, they don't see the future very clearly. But you can. You and I both can. Does it break your heart? I'd like to just add one other thought here. And this has been brought home to me in a very powerful way. Reading through the book of Revelation, you say, oh, I can't understand Revelation. I don't get it. I'm so confused. I get lost. Da, 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 da. Can I just give you a little insight? If you know that the book is written to people who have been under the thumb of suffering, people who have known anguish, grief, loss, like you cannot imagine their brothers and sisters being killed and martyred by this enemy system that's seeking to eradicate followers of Jesus. Here's the word that comes to them. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? One of the things, the many things he says is this. Revelation 7, 17. The lamb one day is going to be at the center of the throne. With, will be the shepherd. He will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear away from their eyes. The mourning and grieving God will one day remove all those tears. He will one day overthrow all of the things that are wrong and out of order in this world. The one who is weeping over Jerusalem is the one who's come to say, I'm going to put it in right order someday. I'm going to get rid of all this crying and weeping and all that's unjust in our world, all that's crying out for somebody to make a difference and put things in right order. Chapter 21, verse 4, Revelation. God will dwell among people, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a weeping prophet is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we must confess our hearts come nowhere close to being like your heart. We get so wrapped up in ourselves. We get so wrapped up in our own comforts. We get so wrapped up in missing out on the real important things of life. And, Lord, our hearts become stony cold and indifferent, uncaring, impatient, judgmental, and in many ways, Lord, self-focused. I pray, oh, I pray, Lord, help us to see our Savior clearly. Help us to see your heart in our Savior. Give us a heart like he had, Lord. And as we sang earlier this morning, 
I pray, Lord, you would break our hearts with what breaks your heart. If it is our sin, Lord, that is breaking your heart, and we are stubbornly refusing to come to you on your terms and to deal with you in what we have to face, the reality that we have rebelled against you, gone our own wicked way, Lord, bring us to the point of repentance and simple childlike trust and surrender to you, I pray. And for those of us, Lord, who have received the good news, those of us who know what it is to have a Savior who has wept over them and rescued them, Lord, break our hearts for those who have yet to enter the kingdom. Give us your compassionate heart, I pray, and teach us to keep our eyes on the weeping prophet, knowing that someday, someday, he will wipe our tears away. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. We ask it in your great name. Amen.